Today we have Vina Jetty on the show. Are you ready to create massive wealth? Women are crushing it in the real estate market. In fact, Vina Jetty and her partner Ellie Perlman from episode 23 are two women who have teamed up and will share with you how they did it. If you're ready to learn from the best, then this is the perfect opportunity for you. Vina has purchased over 4,000 units with an asset value of over $800 million. Listen to this episode and learn how Vina did it. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing. Be introduced to the players that are getting it done and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Vina Jetty before we start the show. Vina lives in the Dallas area. She studied finance as an undergrad student and then became a corporate real estate attorney. She was raised by an entrepreneurial mom that gave her the confidence to go out on her own. She left her corporate career back in 2012 and started investing in real estate. Her first multifamily deal was over $15 million. And now she is focused on much larger deals. Get this. Their current focus are deals north of $100 million. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Vina Jetty with us. Vina, appreciate you coming on the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how I know um, Vina, we have not spoken before, um, but, and you probably don't even remember this, but well, you probably remember the night, but Dan Hanford had a dinner in Dallas and he basically went out on Facebook or somewhere and said, I'm going to auction off like there's one spot left and you're going to be with all these heavy hitters. And he named (laughs) off all these names and you were one of them. That was the first time I was introduced to you. Like I was like, who is this Vina? And then I've seen her on social media and she's... And she's, she's partners with Ellie Perlman. They're doing deals all over the place. So I'm like, holy cow. I I tried to get into that, that dinner. And, uh, I think it was Nick Espinet, uh, who ended up, who ended up getting it. And so I would have met you that night, but I didn't, but here we are. So, um, several years later, better Yeah, better Yeah, That was like pre COVID. Yes. That was pre COVID. (laughs) That was, so a whole lifetime ago, pretty much. <laughs> a- absolutely. So um, first question I typically ask is how many properties and how many units um, you're currently invested in. I know that it's been very active. So, you know, if you want to talk yeah. kind of high level, that that's fine as well. 
Yeah. So we, I was just saying before we started recording that I've sold so many assets that I have almost nothing left in my portfolio now. Um, but as of the end of Q2 this year, we would have transacted on just over 800 million in assets. Um, that's around 4,000 doors. That's crazy. Crazy. That's, I know. I, I just added up the other day because someone it's like, I'm going to ask you this question. And it's like, okay, I better, I better know the answer then. So, so go back to, uh, you know, what were you doing before and how'd you get into the space and why? Yeah. So, so I, I came from a real estate family. My mom is actually a really successful real estate investor. And so she always made it a point to expose my sister and I both to investments and business. And she, you know, she's the entrepreneur of my parents and, you know, part of it, I think, was more by force than by, <laughs> by force. <laughs> well, you will you know, be an investor. Pretty much. Well, so my dad traveled like 45 weeks out of the year when we were little. And it's I have a younger sister and it's just both of us. And so my mom was the default parent. She was the primary parent and she had to be available to pick us up from school and take care of us at night. And she did all the childcare virtually. And so by default for her to go to a traditional job would have just been really tough because my dad was traveling for work. Sure. And so she, yeah, she kind of was like forced into the entrepreneurial lifestyle. Now it suits her personality very well. And she was obviously very successful at it, but it is definitely something that I think laid a foundation for my sister and I to get invested into real estate. Uh, you know, I, I graduated undergrad when I was like 20 with my degree in finance. And I was like, okay, well now, you know, I'm an adult. I have a degree. I'm going to do something totally different and radical because uh, my mom was like, oh, come work for the family. And I was like, Psh, no. And so I went and worked in corporate real estate and <laughs> worked for some of the best shops in the world. Um, ultimately left Tishman Spire in 2012 and started investing for ourselves. And I realized very early on that you can't get to scale one door at a time. And that's where, you know, the beauty of multifamily really came into play. So did your, was your mom an investor in multifamily or single family? Well, my mom did residential at scale. Okay. And we, they've now completely divested from their portfolio. Both my parents retired early from their real estate portfolio and they are now completely invested into our projects. So, you know, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Well, you know, over the last number of years, I'm sure you've done very well for them. So, so they're happy. They're playing yeah. with, uh, playing with a lot of gains, I'm sure. Yes. Yes. So that's where, you know, the 1031 benefit is really coming in handy. Fantastic. So is your sister in it too? Yeah. She's actually a partner at Vive. Oh, is she really? So Vive is, it's Vive funds, right? Yeah. Yep. And so she's a partner with you. It was, it's you and her, or is there more partners as well? No, just us. Okay. So I'm, I'm the one that really started the company and I do the vast majority, but she is more on like the back end and she, she is a partner in the company now. So. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I've definitely seen you as being kind of the face 
out there. Very introverted. <laughs> so. so she's she's happy to be in the background doing the operations and and uh, absolutely yeah. yes. She deals with the important stuff. Right. Fantastic. <laughs> so um, when you were at corporate, you know, and with you said Tishman Spire. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was going through your head in terms of hey I I should maybe consider going out on my own. You know what really the catalyst was is my husband and I paid taxes as a married couple for the first time. And I was like, wait, what just happened right now? And so I actually called my mom and was like, hey, so we just paid like multiple six figures in taxes. What should we do? And she was like, you need to be a full-time real estate professional. You need to invest, spend all of your time here forget your W-2 job, the amount of tax efficiency you could have just from being a full-time real estate professional alone was worth it. And so I said, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, so I talked to a lot of people smarter than I am and that know more about taxes than I do. Sure. And that's how we ended up deciding to make that leap from. So taxes was, was the big impetus that got you. Yeah, moving. it was the driver. So my grandfather, he was an entrepreneur. He owned an aluminum company and um, did very well. And he, he told me as a young kid, like, Darren, you, you got to understand taxes and be able to manage taxes. And I, I was kind of like you when you said that you wanted to go in the corporate world. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds so boring. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go my own way. Um, but it's true. It is the largest expense that you will have. And, you know, for people that are in it, for the syndicators that are in it, for the full-time real estate investors, they get it, you know, especially once they make the transition and you see um, yep. the tax benefit. But could you, for the listeners that don't fully understand, maybe explain that tax benefit of, of being a full-time real estate professional? And the thing is, is that there are, there, you don't necessarily have to be a full-time real estate investor. You could have a couple that, you know, I think there's a lot of couples out there where the, the wife or the husband is a residential realtor. Well, they're a full-time real estate professional. Yeah. And they're not, yeah. may not be taken advantage of some of the tax benefits out there. So, yeah, that's true. So, Okay, I know enough to be very dangerous about taxes, and I am not a tax professional. We are not so. tax professionals. We are not financial advisors. All these, whatever disclaimers you can, yes. <laughs> you can say. Yes. This is like no kind of advice. You should not listen to us <laughs> at all, and you should seek your own professional advice. There you go. So with that out of the way, um, yeah. So the full-time real estate professional designation on your tax return is a very powerful tool because you can write off losses, unlimited losses against active income. So when you can switch the flip, you flip the switch from passive income to active income, then you can start utilizing the benefits against, let's say you have, like I have a spouse who is a high income earner and I can actually offset his tax liability because we file jointly. Now in today's day and age, we have like a tax strategist we work with. He's actually based here out of um, the Dallas area. We've been working with him for almost a decade now. Um, and so I really rely on him to know the latest and greatest tax rules and to understand the tax code and what we should be or shouldn't be doing. And, you know, he takes care of all that now. So I don't have to know that much about it. 
But for anybody who isn't utilizing a tax, we use a tax strategist. And for anyone who isn't, you absolutely should be because a good tax strategist is worth their weight in gold. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, what you said, I just want the listeners to kind of understand it is like, okay, Bina's husband makes a lot of money. He's, mm. you know, W-2 guy? Uh, he is also his own, his own. employer. But so whether you have your own side business or your W-2, you know, if, if your spouse can be claimed as a full-time real estate professional and has all these losses related to depreciation, those losses can then all, all of a sudden be offset the, the gain or the income from the other spouse. And mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings. And plus the time value of money too. Right. And, and then you, you think about you save that much money. And I, so I just got in, in this four years ago and I've written some pretty big checks to the government. And I think back and I'm like, holy cow, if I had, Why did I do this? right. If I had covered that with, with some losses and then invested that money and then that compounded, I mean, it, it's just crazy. The wealth yep. impact. Yep. Well, and that's why the wealthy elite don't use the same tax code that the average person does, right? The wealthy elite in this country pay their lawyers, their tax advisors, and their attorneys very, very well. And those are like three team members you will find on every single wealthy person's speed dial. And it's for a reason. Um, You know, when we started working with Larry, so we work with, I don't know if you know Larry West, he's based here um, in Dallas. Um, He's Precision Business Strategies, his company. So phenomenal guy, highly recommend him. We've been working, like I said, with him for over almost a decade now. I think it's been like eight or nine years. And one of the really great things that we've found an unintended benefit of having a tax strategist who knows the ins and outs of our taxes is now whenever we make a financial decision, I call him or I text him and I say, hey, Larry, we're buying a house for my cousin to live in, right? I'm making this up, but right. we're buying a house for my cousin to live in. How should we take title? Should we buy it in the trust? Are we buying it in our names? Are we buying it in their name and then having them lease from us? Like, what's the best way to do this? And he might say, hey, let me loop in with the estate attorney and let me talk to them and see what they need from the protection, asset protection side. And then we'll find out the most tax efficient way to handle it and get back to you. Or, you know, it might be as simple as, hey, I'm going to buy this car. Am I leasing it or am I financing it or am I paying cash? Right. I mean, most people are not going to make that phone call. They're just going to. I know. They're just going to do it and pay it out of their net income. And. I mean, you can lead a horse to water. Right. You know, but that's, that's the thing. And, you know, some of it is just knowledge that they don't know. Right. And some of it is they've been told, but they're like, okay, well, that's for somebody else. And I'm going to let other people deal with that. Um, for me, like, I didn't know any better. Um, you know, I was putting my money in stock market and, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, four years ago, I, somebody pointed me to the book uh, by Tom Wheelwright, Tax-Free Wealth, and, and it opened my eyes. It was like, it was like my grandfather from years and years and years ago. I should have listened to him, but... Um, I don't want to digress too much on taxes, but listeners, 
you really, 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 really should, should get somebody that understands the benefits of tax with mm-hmm. real estate. Um, yep. Because you can save yourself thousands and thousands and thousands yep. of dollars. And then if you in, reinvest that money, it can compound tremendously over time. So, yep. all right. Definitely worth the phone call. And you know what? A really good tax strategist too will tell you, I'm sorry, I can't save you more than I'm going to charge you. But if they can save you more than they're going to charge you, then it makes sense to bring them on board. I mean, Larry does that very clearly with referrals I've given him. He's like, I'm sorry, Vina, I can't do anything for them. They're not full-time professional, real estate professionals. Right. Right. And, and so, you know, all they can do is, is maybe plan for, for the following year. Um, That's exactly right. So 2012, how was it being a woman in the industry? Cause like, you know, <laughs> in, now, you, I mean, you're still a, mi- you know, a minority, um, you know, there's still not as many women in the industry as there are men, but I'm thinking back to 2012. I'm like, Holy cow. You, you must've been, you know, really sticking out? Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously I'm a woman. I'm also a minority. So it's like a double whammy there. Um, you know, I think we've seen progress, not enough progress. Uh, one thing I've been really excited to see, especially recently, is I feel like a lot of companies are focusing on their ESG initiatives and really making sure that there's diversity and inclusion. Um, so I've seen a, an, a huge uptick in companies like some of the big, big, big multi-billion dollar companies reaching out to us, wanting to partner with us because they want to support emerging fund managers. Um, Also, something interesting that I've seen that I'm actually really excited about is I have seen a massive uptick in women passive investors. Oh, is that right? So, yep, I see a lot more women passive investors and I see a lot of men especially men that have daughters, um, but just men in general that really believe in diversity and equality at the top levels. Um, You know, they're very supportive and they're coming into our funds as obviously not just a way to make money, but also to be in alignment with wanting to have that. You know, I get a lot of, oh, you're a role model for my daughter. And I'm like, well, that really touches me. You know, like that's, I, I don't do this for the money. I do this for the legacy. And I do this because I want my daughters, I'm, you know, I have twin daughters. I want them to know that they don't have to choose between having a family and having a career. And they don't have to choose something that society tells them to because they're women. Well, at one point you probably were doing it for the money and for the, for the wealth. Oh yeah. (laughs) But, but then, but that's the interesting part is that, you know, and I think that you know, when I, you're a listener that you haven't even done your first deal yet. You're just thinking about you, like getting your first deal done. Um, mm-hmm. But then you can't see what happens, you know, yeah. a year, two, three years down the road, how you start thinking bigger, how you sur- start surrounding yourself with different people that push you and how your network starts to come to you and ask you, hey, how'd you do it? I'm interested too. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome that you're giving back. The other thing about, you know, you and look, I, I know you guys from you and Ellie from more from social media and from conferences and the multifamily world, but 
you guys didn't decide to go small, right? No, you know, yeah. like you could have just dabbled in, in the space and made decent money, but you guys, you guys have gone big. I mean, you talked about it before. You, at one point, over, you know, 800 million in assets, you know, that takes, you know, a, a different mindset, a different belief system, you know, that you can do it. So how did you get there? Oh, I don't think I'm there still. I think every deal we do, even now, I'm like, can we really do this size of deal? <laughs> I, literally every time Ellie and I talk about putting in hard money or an LOI on a deal, if it's bigger than any deal we've done before, I'm like, Ellie, do you think we can do this deal? And then we both start laughing because literally every single time we do a deal, we have the same conversation. She's like, I'm just going to record this conversation so that you can listen to it. We don't have to have it. And that's great. we know that we're going to, you know, it's a leap of faith. And um, again, it's like having those partners that you can rely on because we come across problems and challenges all day long, right? It's We're in the business of solving problems. And I think the really great thing about working with someone that shares your vision and shares your outlook is that no matter what, we both have a dedication to integrity and excellence for our LPs. And that really helps guide us in what we should be doing or how we should be doing this. And we, when we put, we focus on our LPs, we obsess over them. And that really is the lifeblood of what we do. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we have done bigger and bigger deals and you know, it's easier to scale. And once you've done a $50 million deal, it's easier to do 80 million and then it's easier to do 110. So, you know, it's kind of a snowball effect and it compounds, like you said earlier. So, you know, go big or go bigger. Yeah. But when you first started, what was the first, first multifamily deal? 15.9 million. That's still a large deal for, you know, er, know, you know early on, because that was probably a, a while away when, and unit costs were down. I mean, that's still a good size deal from to start out with. Yeah. You know, I, I did not think that I would start there. And it's funny because now when I think about it, I just, my mindset has changed so much that when someone gives me an exciting deal that they want to transact off market. And I'm like, Oh, okay, great. How many, how many units is it? How much does it, how much are you asking for? What's whisper? And they'll be like, Oh, it's, you know, 200 units and it's $50 million. And I'm like, we can't do that deal. And I'm like, really, it's a big deal. And I'm like, "Mm, it's not big enough for us to even look at anymore. And so when you get to a point or, and actually I would say this to anybody, even starting operators, to really narrow down what your focus is because you cannot underwrite deals that are 10 million or 2 million and then 40 million and then 80 million and be efficient in any kind of way. Right. So for us, we're like very strict about our buy criteria and we say no to anything that does not fit this teeny, teeny, teeny little box. So if it's under 200 units, no. If it's older than 1980s vintage? No. If it's not in one of our core or target markets? No. Um, So we really, really, really stay strict to our buy criteria. So much so that I have a whole brochure on what our buy criteria is. So when I have someone who comes to me and says, hey, I know a lot of people with off-market deals. Great. Feel free to send them to us. Here's our buy criteria. If they don't fit this, you don't need to send it to us. 
That's that's great. And and that buy criteria has changed over time, obviously, yeah. um, mm-hmm. based on your expertise and and where you guys your objectives and whatnot. Um, so, you know, some people have said, uh, you know, that they because I talk about fear, like, mm-hmm. and you actually don't even come across a fearful at all. <laughs> like you, you, you seem very, very confident, but I've had people that have thousands of units and they said, you know, in that first deal or two, yeah, I was scared. And I'm like, how'd you push past it? And they're, they're like, well, I thought, what's the worst thing that could happen? What's the That's worst right. case scenario? And then can I live with that? And then what's the upside and what's, you know, what's the probability? And, and they're like, you know what? The upside is so much bigger and more probable. Um, yeah, the downside could happen. But I think that that's human nature and um, that most people are more afraid to lose than they are willing to take a chance to, to win. That's actually true. There are studies that show people will go much more out of their way to prevent losing $100 than they will to gain that same $100. Or, or gain 10000 or 100000 right? Yeah, like, right. you know, it's like, is. but yeah. you just don't want to lose anything, right? Right, right. And, and that's exactly right. I mean, it, I, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I, I know that it, it's easy for me to talk about it now because it's so far behind me. But the first raise I ever did was so hard. So, so, so hard. I cried myself to sleep for six weeks because I thought we weren't going to close the deal. Right. So, um, you know, it's easy now because it's so far in the rearview mirror. But there was a point where I woke my husband up in the middle of the night and I was in tears and I was like, honey, we have to sell everything we own. I need to liquidate all of our 401ks and we have to sell our house and I have to sell your Porsche. And he was like, you know, the Porsche got him like awake right away. He's like, what? And I was like, listen, I just, I have to sell everything. And I'm sorry that I put our family in this position, but this is where I'm at now. And he was like, okay, you're obviously sleep talking, go back to sleep and we'll figure it out in the morning. Right. right. And so I was like, I was like, this is the situation. I told him what was happening. And I was like, I need, I'm short money to close and we need to liquidate so that I can afford to close this deal. Otherwise, I actually didn't care about losing the money. I didn't care about that. What I really cared about was the reputation with the brokers and the reputation with our investors. So I didn't want, I, even if we had left hard money in the deal or whatever, that was fine. But not closing that deal, I knew was going to put me on the wrong path with the broker, with the lender, with title, with our investors. And that reputational hit so early on was way too expensive for me. So I was willing to lose everything we had in order to make sure that I didn't lose the reputation. And now it's different, right? Because now we are well-funded. We have, you know, we know our investors. Our investors have invested in multiple projects with us. Uh, about 80 to 90% of my investors are in two or more projects with me. So I, and that's a KPI I track very, very closely, by the way, for anybody new, I highly recommend tracking this KPI. Um, but I know how they're going to act. I know what they like. I know what they're going to invest in. I know what they're not going to invest in. And we try to stay true to that criteria. Yeah, that's that's huge. Uh, you said earlier that, and and you just were talking about it again in this story, 
you know, that your focus on the LPs is so important to you. And, um, you know, I, I think that there, there can be um, a disconnect between the way LPs think that syndicators think about them and the way yeah. they do think about them. Because mm-hmm. I think some, you know, passives, especially, I would say, especially the ones that are just getting started and they're in just one or two or three deals, the ones that have been doing it for a long time, they understand that there's ups and downs and, and, but that they think they just want my money, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, that's not, that's <laughs> not it. I mean, especially on the first deal or two, the reputation and actually delivering and over delivering is so, so important to the syndicator that they're going to do everything possible to try to make that deal a success because otherwise, like you said, you kind of get blackballed, you know, and in the industry, you know, from all the different avenue. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's what a sponsor worth their salt should do in my opinion. Um, does that mean every one of them does it? No, right, right. <laughs> but they should because once, you know, communication is important. This is a relationship business. People don't invest with me because they like one, two, three main street as an asset. They might like the overall pro forma. They might like the idea of it. They invest because they trust me to execute on what I say I'm going to deliver. And that is something I don't take lightly. I take that responsibility very seriously. And I'm going to make sure that, they're comfortable along the way. Now, we're also at a point too where I have more money than I have deals. So I don't need to work with any one investor. And I actually will not work with the investors that I think are a bad fit for us at this point. But in the beginning, you don't necessarily have that same kind of leverage. And so there's this, when you first start, you're basically like, oh my gosh, please, please, please just actually follow through. You said you're going to invest. Please actually invest this dollar with me. <laughs> I don't know if this deal is going to work, right? <laughs> but as time goes on, as you prove out the track record, as you build that relationship with your investors and focus on your current investors, because they're the ones that actually trusted you, right? So once you start building that relationship, what happens is they'll start to reinvest. They'll start to refer their friends and family. And then you build up a larger and larger database and it kind of snowballs. But you get to this point where you the scales tip and then now I don't have to work with any LP I don't want to work with. Um, you know, there are sometimes there's family offices that'll approach us and ask to write, you know, five, six, Hard $10 sense. million dollar check, which is great. But then they want special terms that we're just not willing to agree to. Um, you know, we've turned down quarter of a billion dollar checks before because they just, they want to, too much control over our company and our process. And that's not really what we want to do. So it's a powerful thing being able to say no comfortably. Yeah, that, that's huge. Um, you talked about no like, and trust, and that gets bantered about a lot. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. But I think that it, you also said something that, needs to be tied into that. And, and it's no like and trust. So I, I know v, Vina, I know Ellie, I'm, 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 but you not, in addition to no like and trust, you have to think that they're actually going to give you the return that you, you want. <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, it's not just no like and trust and like these guys don't know what they're doing, right? It's no like yeah. and trust and believe that 
hey, they're telling me that I could get this return and you know, we're going to get there or get close or, or whatever. They're going to, they're going to, you know, go down fighting to, to get there. Yeah. Darren, I thought that part was implied. (laughs) Well, a lot of people talk about no like, and trust. And, you know, when you get those referrals, those referrals like to mom and dad and aunt and uncle and brother and sister and friends, that's coming because, Hey, I invested a hundred grand and, and she made me a lot of money. And yeah. so yeah. you should talk to her. So, Hey, talk about, um, earlier you talked about problem solving and then mm-hmm. you, you know, basically this, you have all these assets and you're always fighting fires and solving problems. Yeah. Talk about, you know, one of those, those problems and how you guys solved it. Oh gosh, which problem do you want? There's pick, like pick one. a new massive one every single day. Um, let's see. So there, okay, I'll actually give you one that's like a very tangible problem that we had during COVID. Um, so we didn't know how to conduct due diligence in fall or summer, fall of 2020. And we're very risk averse investors in general. And so, and our LPs are like that too. So we're very sensitive to the amount of risk we take on in any asset and we try to mitigate it wherever we can. And one of the big risks that we had was we were under contract on an asset. We had to do due diligence. And I'm like, how are we going to walk all of these units? Because we walk 100% of the units that we put under contract during the due diligence phase. And so I was like, okay, maybe we can like, send drones in (laughs) so that we can see the condition and we can kind of like figure it out or because at that time we still didn't really know a whole lot about COVID right like we didn't know if you could transfer it on surfaces like I was microwaving my mail at one point and so we just didn't know how you could how easily you could transmit it and so ultimately, um, the, the mechanism that we ended up coming up with was, um, and we can't send property management in either because it violates like the OSHA standards because of what the CDC guidelines were at the time. And so we actually went to the property ourselves and there were a few of the property management team that were willing to go in despite there being COVID. So we, like, we had everyone in like head to toe PPE. Um, Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were very, very strict about it. So everyone was in PPE. We would go in, we'd ask the resident to step out. We'd go in um, and we would be in there for like less than two or three minutes. And we just basically video everything. And then if there was an issue, we would go back in. But what the challenge that happened was some of the residents, they just don't want to open the door. So we'd be like, okay, you know, maintenance, knocking on the door. And then they're like, oh, <coughs> I have COVID. I'm like, really? Because we asked you if you had any symptoms yesterday when we said this, but okay, fine. If they tell you you have COVID, you just, you can't take the risk and go in there. Right. And so we're like, okay, that's fine. So the way we ultimately solved for that was we negotiated with the seller to have a hold back in escrow for every unit we couldn't get into because of COVID. And that way we protected our investors from, you know, maybe there was a unit that, was completely dilapidated that we couldn't get into that would cost us 
20 grand. And so this way we really hedged our exposure to risk from not being able to walk. It was only 4% of units we ultimately couldn't get into, but that 4%, we needed to make sure that we were protected. The you know end of the story was that everything ended up fine and we've exited it since then. But, um, you know, it's, it's one of the concerns we had and it, it's a problem. It was a big problem we had to solve and it wasn't as simple as calling someone we know who's done this before and sure. been through a pandemic before. So it was, it took a little bit of creativity. But that's, that was a good solution. So you, you held uh, in escrow and then how long did you have to kind of release that escrow? I think it was 60 days. 60, is what days. We, 60 or 90 days. I think it was 60 though. We didn't need much longer than that. Cause once they had COVID, we knew that they had some amount of immunity for like 30 or 60 days at that time. And then shortly after we closed, the vaccine ended up coming out. So once the vaccine came out, then it was much easier for us to sure. enter into units. Fantastic. Hey, um, people say that, you know, your, your net worth is the average of the five people that you hang around with. Um, and, you know, there's a lot, a lot of, talk about the benefits of hanging out with people that are, you know, mm -hmm. further along than you are. Um, mm -hmm. So do you attend any mastermind type of functions or anything that kind mm -hmm. of puts you in a room with people that have, you know, are further along that you're trying to learn from? Yeah. So I, I don't actually do masterminds mainly because I'm so scared of the time commitment that I need to join these that I haven't pulled the trigger yet. I probably will in the near future, but, um, my, we have, I have like a few text groups that I'm in with other real estate investors or entrepreneurs and they're, I'm easily the small fish in that group. And so we have like, a, we actually interact almost daily on those and it might just be celebrating a win or solving a problem or someone might say, Hey, I need help. I need someone to jump on a social media video with me whatever, whatever. And one of us will, you know, offer ourselves up or, um, you know, some of them have large communities that they lead and they'll say like, Hey, I need someone to come and help talk about multifamily. Bina, can you just hop on for an hour? And so, you know, we all help each other and it's just, it's a really great community that we have inadvertently created without intentionally meaning to. Look, I mean, I've seen it time and time again with, with different people that have been successful is that they continually, you know, one, they continually push the boundaries in terms of what they can do. And they also surround themselves with, with other people that are doing big things um, yeah. that give them ideas and give them encouragement and inspiration. And sometimes, you know, just a kick in the butt, like you shouldn't be focusing on something that small. You should be focusing on something bigger. And so for the listener's benefit, like, look, so many people in real estate will tell you, look, if your network is you're surrounded by people that are not in real estate and you want to invest in real estate, then get out there and start networking and surround yourself with like-minded people because the other people are going to tell you you're crazy, mm -hmm. you know, but yeah. then, you, then you talk to Vina and she's like, you know what? $50 million deal is too small for me. You know, like she didn't get there overnight, right? You know, I didn't mean it like that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that that way. But <laughs> the point yeah. is that like, look, I mean, 
I was scared to do a duplex, you know, and you know, that wouldn't scare me anymore. But like, you know, until you do it, you don't know. And then you kind of hit the next boundary and the next, you know, the next line in the sand and, and you keep pushing the boundaries. Um, so I was not trying to, yeah. <laughs> trying to, to say that <laughs> you were too good like for that. it. No, no, not at all. Hey, uh, well, that, that's the thing is like, you know, people think if somebody just meets Vina now, right. And they hear, you know, you had 800 million in assets and at yeah. one point and you think that you're an overnight success. Like you, but yeah, it only took, 10 years to be an overnight success. Right, exactly. Like it's like one step <laughs> after the other and then one growth after the other. So, um, but this is what I would tell listeners is that Vina, myself, every other person that's been on this show, every other real estate investor started with none. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody started with zero. And yeah. so, you know, at some point you got to get off the fence and actually buy something. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, talk about we're in a weird time, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. As we record this yesterday, the Fed just raised rates by 75 basis points. Yes. Um, you know, I was at a multifamily event two, two nights ago and ton of syndicators and everybody's talking about how, you know, the debt on these deals is it's not working. It's very difficult, right? It's uh, so you know, interest rates are going up, proceeds are going down um, on floating rate loans. The caps are becoming extremely, extremely unaffordable. Um, And so the only really lever is potentially to pay less and, and sellers, you know, aren't there yet. So it's, it's an interesting time. Talk about kind of what you're seeing and where you think we, we go from here. Yes. No, it's very, very, very painful to see. I, the problem is we, yes, I want to buy anything 75 million and up. Nothing is pricing out for where we are comfortable transacting on the deal. Uh, and that's because the interest rates are, decreasing our sales proceeds and it's squeezing the cash. Actually, it's not even the IRR that's hurting us. It's the cash flow during the hold period that's really tough. So I think it'll be interesting to see if investors, if LP investors will tolerate a lower cash on cash to be more IRR driven. I, I will say our family offices, they don't care about cash on cash. They care about IRR. They are like, okay, whatever, pay me, don't pay me. I don't care about that but make me a boatload of cash in the shortest amount of time possible. And that's really their goal. And so it'll be interesting to see if retail investors kind of shift more into that mindset or not. I do think that this year and next year, there's still going to be a lot of demand on multifamily assets because bonus depreciation is going from 100% down to 80% next year. Right. So I think even through Q1, Q2, we'll probably see a lot of activity. There's still a lot of capital that's sidelined from 2020. And with inflation reports coming out at these crazy numbers, income-producing real estate is a phenomenal hedge against inflation risk. And so I think we're still going to see demand, I think, as less and less people are able to buy single-family homes. I think we're going to just see more and more renters. I've been saying this for years. I think that 
affordable housing is the next housing crisis that this country is going to face. Mm. I mean, everybody says that there's a huge shortage, right? Um, there's a shortage. I, well, it, practically, right? Like if we look at the economics of it, hedge funds and PE groups are buying single fam, family homes at higher rates than they've ever bought before. But it's not that they're buying those homes. It's which homes are they buying? They're buying the zero to 500 price range. They're not buying the $5 million mansion, the $10 million mansion. They're buying the homes that middle America has historically used to build their wealth. The vast majority of Americans have historically held the majority of their net worth in their home, in their primary home. And now that that's not a tool available to them, where do they go to build that wealth? And what does that look like? What does the landscape look like? And I think that's what people aren't talking about. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because, you know, people in the multifamily space will say, you know, talk about how your home is not, you know, an asset because you're, it's hard to say that now with all the appreciation we've had over the last several years. Right. Um, but that you should be investing in cash flowing assets. Um, and, but there's still a lot of, lot of people that aren't going to do that. And that's interesting to think about, okay, well, if you take a segment of that population out and don't give them the opportunity because it's just too expensive to buy a home Mm -hmm. now, then, then where are they going to build that, that wealth? That's, that's a very interesting question. I don't know the answer. Um, (laughs) I thought you were going to tell me. No, I do not know the answer, but I do want to get your take on this. So like they say that real estate is a great hedge for inflation, Mm -hmm. right? So the way I look at multifamily, right? I'm like, okay, if, if you have wage inflation, Mm-hmm. then people have more money and should be able to pay higher rents. Mm-hmm. So the top line in multifamily deals should go up. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the debt service, you know, is less than, expenses is, is less than half of the, the rent. So right. um, let's, let's talk about, you know, debt service. If it's fixed, then that's great because it's, you've, locked in your debt service and your top line is increasing. So profitability should, should increase over time. But here's the question, a million dollar question for me is, all right, well, interest rates going up, cap rates should follow. They will. You know, because everything is relative value. If you can buy a, you know, 10 year treasury at same yield as a, multifamily deal that doesn't make sense right right so cap rates should go up so now that's a negative impact to valuations but the increased well, profit don't plan for it though if but if it well yeah if you know i know people going- i know people are planning for it but you know it's a you know it's a little dartboard i mean in terms of what what percentage each year all right, let's say that you budgeted in 10 basis points a year of increased cap rate. And um, they go up 12. And they go up, 12, you know, sorry, 12, 20 yeah. basis points. So yeah. there's a negative impact to valuation, but then you have the increased profitability from the wage inflation. So which one will have a bigger impact? 
Well, I think that cap rates are going to expand one way or the other, right? Because the we know that interest rates and cap rates have like a 60 to 70% correlation. So we know they're going up. A good operator should be taking all of this into consideration and not really counting on an increase from wage inflation in their trends for their pro forma, right? Like they should be keeping those numbers as minimal as possible while trending up your interest rates by looking at how much of a cap you're buying down on floating debt. Um, And, you know, I I almost wonder if this is the point in the market where shifting to more permanent or fixed rate debt makes more sense, because for the last few years, it hasn't made sense because the prepay penalty is just so high. People got stuck. Yep. You get stuck or you, I mean, we, we had some assets, we paid like several million dollars to exit them because it was the right time, which that was money that could have gone to investors had it not been that specific type of debt. But we didn't know we were going to exit it that soon. I mean, who knew that COVID would not slow down the market and actually would heat it up even more. Right. Um, So I think that you can, take all of these things into consideration in your underwriting on acquisition. Like cap rates expanding, I'm not upset about it. I want them to expand so we can buy things. Like we can't buy anything right now because cap rates are so low. So if we can find deals that now pencil out and make sense, great. I'm I'm happy about that. And we'll underwrite to a cap rate expansion to hedge against the risk. That's a great way of looking at looking at it for sure. Um, I've also heard other people talk about, you know, and part of it is due to the lenders forcing it, um, but but part of it is is also to act as a cushion. People are taking on less leverage, you know, so they're, yeah. you yeah. know, they're, yeah. instead of doing seventy five eighty LTV loans, they're doing you know sixty five or seventy, and yeah. and they're bringing in more equity. Yep, that's what we're doing. And our equity requirements are shifting. So we've been educating our investors for months now saying like, hey, we are not in a 7 or 8% cash on cash environment anymore. We're hardly in a 6% cash on cash environment. And they've been okay with that. I don't know what other options there are because mm-hmm. if I tell you, I can tell you 8%, sure. I mean, I can put garbage in to get garbage out and I can get, I can show you 8% on a spreadsheet. But the reality is it doesn't matter what I do. I can't operate at an 8%. I just can't. And so I am not going to be able to pay you 8%. So I'm going to raise money from you one time. Right. However, when you go to them and you say, hey, this is why we're not in this environment. Here's the assumptions we made because we want it to be more conservative. We think we can realistically hit these numbers. We're going to try to under promise and over deliver for you. Our investors know that we're going to try to do that at a bare minimum. We're going to aim for those pro forma numbers. I'm not going to put something in front of you just because it'll make you write me a check. You're going to come back to me. If I tell you 6% and I pay you 7% and the next person tells you 8% and you pay them 7%, they are going to think that the person who said 8% underperformed, even though we gave you the exact same return. Uh, Absolutely. I think that people appreciate that, you know, um, Look, I'm in a lot of passive deals and mm-hmm. they they were all seven, eight percent cash on cash, right? Yeah. And I have some di- some that are no distributions, you know, some oh. that are delayed distributions, some that are exceeding 
distribution. So it's like all over the, over, all over yeah. the map. And um, to have an operator that really is focused on hitting that and setting a benchmark where people can trust that, you know, mm-hmm. hey, I, I'm in five of their deals and four of them they've hit every time. Minor hitting, so all, even on the cash on cash, yes, fantastic. Actually, we're overperforming on two of our assets. Both the assets we closed last year were overperforming by thirty percent on cash on cash. Well, I so. want to get on your investor database. Learning <laughs> <laughs> in the water's warm. <laughs> fantastic. But I'm hey, not going to tell you eight percent out of the gate, so you're going to have to decide if that's okay for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, it's funny because. When you're in this world, you th- you start, you know, the passive start getting, I think, a little greedy um, in terms of like, ah, it's not 8%. They want to have 6% or whatever. But, you know, the average return in the stock market is like, what, 7 uh, right? Nothing right you know? now. Right. Well, <laughs> not, no, it's negative right now, right? Um, but over time, you know, and yeah. that's total return, you know? and. Yeah. Here and you, not tax efficient either. Right. It's not tax efficient either. So um, talk to somebody. So listeners on that are trying to get into space, it can take nine months, a year, year and a half, you know, to get that first deal. So talk about kind of perseverance, determination, grit to, you know, staying power, all of that mm-hmm. um, to, you know, give some inspiration to, somebody that's just trying to break in now. Um, Well, if it makes you feel better, it's hard for all of us. Everybody, right? Yeah. it's. I'm doing my first deal in July of 2022 for this year. So for seven months, I have not had a single deal that makes sense. And it's not for lack of effort. Uh, We're trying. In last year, we did two the year before that, I did one. Um, so it is just a tough market to compete in. We are, our competitors are really the institutional funds and large family offices generally. But if you're transacting on the smaller scale assets, the competition there is even higher than the competition at the 80 million and up price point. When so, she says smaller scale, like she's, pro- she, I, she didn't, I mean, she didn't define it, but I, I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking she's like, oh, well, that's like 60 units, 100 units, 150 units. If you're, if you're in the small scale and then listeners are like, man, I haven't even done a fourplex. Like, no, you know, but even you know. a fourplex, they're, that's the most competitive. Right. The smaller the deal, the more competitive it is because more people can buy it. Right. Um, so I really mean like, and I'll tell you, even at the 75 million and up mark, We've been competing against like 50 offers, 40 offers, 35 offers. So it, it's just crazy up and down the board, no matter how you slice it. I I actually bought a single family home recently in my neighborhood. Um, and it was a, it was an emotional purchase because it's for my my in-laws to live there. So, you know, it's across the street from my parents' house. So all three of us will be in the same oh, neighborhood. Oh, awesome. So, yeah, totally. How emotional. old are your kids? Um, there'll be three in July. Wow. So it's, it'd be great to have both grandparents right there. Yes. Yes. Like free childcare is very important. To, <laughs> no, just and, right. Do you um, don't want to say, parents, you're not listening <laughs> to this one. Right? I hope not. <laughs> Although I think my mom is like one of three people that follows 
all my podcasts and listens to all of that. So she probably but um, I bought that house and oh my gosh, I competed like I've never competed on a deal before. And I wasn't the highest offer. Actually, usually we're not the highest offer. We're winning on terms. But I, so I bought my parents' house just five years ago, directly across the street. And I paid triple the price. Holy cow. For the house I just closed this year. Wow. That's crazy. It's it's a crazy market. So you said you're winning on terms. Let's talk about multifamily. What terms help you win a deal? Yeah. So hard money up front with minimal carve outs. Um, So we do like 90%, 95% of our due diligence before we even go to the LOI stage. Um, We put significant hard money up and we- Significant 1%, 2% higher- more <laughs> uh, it depends on the deal right so See, I, I like I've got listeners that are syndicators and they're trying to you know sneak out some you know bonus points yeah. on what they can do so I I don't always get the person to say something but if they do great so yeah I think it's north of two percent <laughs> listeners <laughs> I think it depends on the deal, right? right? Like depends on the deal. It depends on the timing in the market of the deal. But there are some deals we'll go in with more than 2%. Um, there's some deals we'll go in with less than 2%. It just really depends on what the total transaction looks like. So we'll compete on hard money. We'll, we'll limit our carve outs to almost none. We have four or five standard carve outs that we make no matter what. And even those, if we can overcome the question marks on those before LOI, we'll remove them before we go to contract. Uh, We also, we've been competing on due diligence and closing periods too. So the last two deals we closed, we closed those in 42 days, 21 days of due diligence and 21 days of financing. So 42 days, holy cow. Um, When was that deal done? Because in the last uh, in December. In December. Because at least in this year, I was hearing that everybody's backed up on the, you know, whether it be appraisers and all, you know. Oh, yeah. And so closing in 42 days is is pretty impressive. Yeah, it was it was definitely tough. Um, but we had no extensions and said, we can do it. We've done it before. And then, you know, the first time we did it, we said the same thing. I'm pretty sure even though we hadn't done it before, <laughs> uh, but now we've done it a bunch of times. So it's easier to say that with truth in our eyes. Uh, but no, listen, the, the more competitive you can be on those things, the better shot you have. So even the single family home I closed on, I paid triple the price from what I paid for another house five years ago. But in today's market, I paid a very reasonable asking price and then even more so because I was willing to pay a premium for the emotional factor, but I wasn't the highest bid on that house. Um, There were investors that were bidding higher on that house, but I went in with better terms. So I offered all cash. I gave them an opportunity to lease back for as long as they wanted. I told them, "I I will close any day you want with 48 hours of notice. If I can get clean title, I'll close within 48 hours. You pick any day you want. So I made it very easy for them. I went in with so much hard money <laughs> that they probably thought I was ridiculous. But I was like, I'm going to put this down one way or the other. So right. let's put our money where our mouth is. 
And I put it down right out of the gate. Um, you know, and those are things that you can do to make sure that you are really being competitive because hard money tells sellers that you are a serious, serious. buyer. Right. Yeah. And I, I waived all contingencies. I was like, I don't need inspection. I don't need appraisal. I don't need any of these contingencies. And they loved it. They were happy with it. And they obviously chose us. And, um, you know, it didn't hurt that they are my parents' neighbors. Yeah. So <laughs> um, that helped. But they, they chose a lower offer. We didn't go up in pricing to match the other offers. Right. That's fantastic. So. Hey, Vina. So you, you guys have done so much. What's kind of your next big stretch goal? Um, let's see. I think that, well, we're underwriting some larger portfolios now. So how do you define larger? Um, we're looking in like the 110 to 150 range now. Good. So good job. That's that's fantastic. Thank you. I'm sure I'll be making a call to Ellie to ask her, Hey, can we really like raise hundred million dollars or 70 million or whatever we'll need to raise and have the same conversation we were having when we were raising for much smaller deals, just have more zeros at the end. Well, you are the first person that has told me that every deal that they've done, they've not only hit the IRR number, you know, total return number, but also hit the cash on cash. You know, um, I, I haven't heard that before. I have people that say, Look, some of our deals, the cash flow wasn't there, but we we got it on the back end and everybody was happy. Um, but Well, that's what I love about Vive, right? Is like my sister and I being the only two partners, like we have a lot of control and a lot of decision-making power of not just which deals we go into out of the gate, but the strategy behind them, the execution behind them. We have the ability to pivot quicker. And so people ask me all the time, they're like, oh, I, I've actually had people offer to buy an equity piece of Vive and I'm unwilling to give it up because I don't want to give up that control because of how important it is for my investors to know that we're making decisions. And listen, not everybody's track record is going to always stay at 100%, especially as we go into this next market cycle. But I want to keep it that way for as long as As long as you can, right? Absolutely. That brings confidence to the investors for sure. So what do you like to do outside of work for fun? Oh, I hang out with my family whenever I get a chance. I, my kids are like a fun age now where they have opinions and (laughs) ideas and, you know, they like say the funniest thing the other day. Uh, one of my daughters was, we were asking her cause we were filling out, you know, that my first day of school board and it's like, what's your favorite color? What do you want to like, what's your favorite song? And then it said, what do you want to be when you grow up? So my one daughter was like, Oh, I want to be an astronaut. I'm like, great. Like we'll watch some videos of astronauts. Like there's some, there's a pair of sisters that were astronauts that did an interview in the space station. I was like, watch those. And yeah. And then my other daughter is like, well, I want to be an adult so I can drink beer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Like, uh, okay. But like, what else? She's like, well, when I'm six years old, I'm going to be an adult and I'm going to drink beer. And they're like, no, no, you will not be an adult when you're six that, years old. That and is she goes, great. When I'm six and a half. I was like, no, when you're 30, you can drink a beer. <laughs> that is great. That's so funny. So, it's I'm funny like, how funny. you can have two kids being 
brought up by the same mom and dad in the same house with the same conversations and they could be so different. So, um, that's, that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I am basically like waiting with one daughter and miserably failing on the parents <laughs> and the other, so. Welcome to the real world. Um, oh, seriously. Hey, so if somebody wants to reach out and get to know you guys better and listen, listeners, I'm not just making that up. I, I don't know anybody that has told me that they've hit both cash on cash and the total return number on every deal that they've done so far. So definitely look these guys up or these women up. Ladies up. Yeah. Ladies up. <laughs> yeah. So you can go to my website, vivefunds.com, V-I-V-E-F-U-N-D-S.com. And I have an investor portal there. So you can always, you know, poke around, see if, if we have any offerings, what they look like. Um, we do release a quarterly performance report. So we'll be putting out our Q2 report here in the next couple of weeks. Um, so you guys can check that out too and kind of see what we've been up to. Fantastic. Well, Vina, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I learned a lot and, and I also just liked getting to know you. So, um, and you're a neighbor, I'm in Prosper, you're in Frisco. So we will definitely have to get together. Um, listeners, we're both adults, so we can drink beer, right? (laughs) You you can show a picture to your daughter, right? Yeah. So she knows this is what adults do. (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that one until next week. Signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's real estate investing show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 